Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Amen. Let's now give attention to the word of the Lord for our sermon, 2 Samuel chapter 23. We'll read verses 1 through 7. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Now these are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, declares, The man who is raised on high declares, The anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, when the tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine after rain. Truly is not my house so with God. For he has made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things and secured for all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not indeed make it grow? But the worthless, every one of them will be thrust away like thorns because they cannot be taken in hand. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear and they will be completely burned with fire in their place. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless us as we look into your word, that you would feed us and strengthen us, that you would build us up by this inspired word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So we're here at the end of 2 Samuel, these last few chapters. Again, I've said before when we've been going through the book that it seems like these last few chapters are an appendix to uh, 2 Samuel, and here we get the final words, or David's last song, but the final words of David, it says in that first line. Now, these are the last words of David. And I would say, well, we could turn over to 1 Kings chapter 2 and verses 1 through 9, and we read there about David's time drawing near to die, and he charged Solomon his son, and then David lays out this charge. Those may be the last, the last, last words of David in 1 Kings 2, but in, first, in 2 Samuel 23, I think we have, I think what we have here are the last recorded words of the last words of David as the king, and uh, sort of the last official words. And so, it's, it's interesting how we place importance on final words, isn't it? The last things that people say uh, have a tendency to be written down and remembered and thought about. There's, and, and why is that? Well, I think it's because often um, there's the one dying has a sobriety in his life that like he's never had before, right? Sees things, if God gives him presence of mind, if you're blessed by God to have presence of mind in your dying hours, then you have a lucidity and a sobriety at that point where all the entertainments of life seem meaningless. All the, all the things that you talked about 
um, around the water cooler at work seem superficial because your, your last breaths are coming out of your body and you will shortly stand before God. Now, if that doesn't bring sobriety, if that doesn't bring deep reflection, then uh, nothing will. Then you may as well um, talk about college football and your dying breaths, right? Um, there's work to dying, right? There's there there when we are when we are when we are doing the work of dying. We hope that God would give us this uh, these moments where we could talk to those we love with uh, through the pain and through the difficulty, through the uh, the difficulty in breathing or whatnot. And we we would hope that there we would be able to do that because I think people. At that point, listen. This is why pastors like to preach funerals and not weddings. No one listens to pastors at weddings, but they do at funerals. They do at funerals because generally there's a body that is lifeless, that's, that is testifying to the end of life, and that has a way of sobering everybody who's there. But again, so, you know, if, if many, of you, many of you have been in circumstances where you have been with loved ones when they passed from this world to the next, and, and many of you have uh, been blessed to hear last words of someone that you love, even if it's just an I love you, it means so much at that point to hear that. And so here, here David's last words are recorded for us, and it's good for us to pay attention to them. But just as a getting into this, I went and looked up the last words of many famous people, and I wanted to share some of those last words with you. Because again, last words, if you have presence of mind, last words seem to be your often a last declaration of your view of the world, right? Your last declaration to those around you about what you did that was important or what you believe that um, is significant. And so here are a few. Socrates, this is before Christ, right, about 399 B.C. Socrates said, all of the wisdom of this world is but a tiny raft upon which we must set sail when we leave this earth. If only there was a firmer foundation upon which to sail, perhaps some divine word. Right? And you think, yeah, yes, um, there is one, and you uh, did not heed it. Uh, Philip III, King of France, 13th century, what an account I shall have to give to God. How I should like to live otherwise than I have lived. Voltaire, 18th century. In 20 years, Christianity will be no more. My single hand shall destroy the edifice it took 12 apostles to build. Ouch. Karl Marx. Karl Marx's last words. Go on, get out. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. Bing Crosby, that great thinker. I mean, dancer, singer. He couldn't dance, he was more of a singer. 
Here's what Bing Crosby, his dying words, his last breath. And that was a great game of golf. Napoleon, I marvel that where the ambitious dreams of myself and of Alexander and of Caesar should have vanished into thin air, a Judean peasant Jesus should be able to stretch his hands across the centuries and control the destinies of men and nations. I mean, it's both arrogant and humble at the same time. He puts himself up there with Alexander the Great and Caesar, and yet he says Jesus has controlled the destinies of men and nations unlike any of those other men. Leonardo da Vinci, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Benjamin Franklin, a dying man can do nothing easy. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and, and um, this one, uh, anyway, I'll, I'll just share it with you. I have a terrific headache. Those were his dying words. Those are probably the dying words of many, many people. Vincent Van Gogh, I shall never get rid of this depression. Jonathan Edwards, trust in God and you shall have nothing to fear. John Owen, I am going to him whom my soul loves, or rather who has loved me with an everlasting love which is the sole ground of all of my consolation. Martin Luther stole from Jesus. He said, into Thy hands I commend my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O God of truth. And of course, those are Jesus' final words. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. And so you see, going through those last words, some last words are nostalgic. They express a longing to be back to the days of youth or, you know, life has passed them by and they had regrets. And, and so it's a look back. But some, some last words look forward to the future, and that's, that's exactly what David's last words, last recorded words here are. They look, to the, they, they look forward to the future. Now, first of all, go back to David's, the, the first verse. We get four names here for, the, for David himself. David's names, right? Son of Jesse. The man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. And so, uh, son, of, son of Jesse is, in a sense, declaring that, uh, I mean, he's declaring his lineage. This would tie him into the line of Christ, but also to say son of Jesse is to say he's a Bethlehemite. He's from an insignificant city. It'd be like Jesus saying, I'm, you know, I'm from Galilee, an insignificant um, region. So son of David, man raised on high, right? You remember how David was, was chosen to be king, uh, the youngest brother, right? They went through all the other brothers before they got to David, and then David was, uh, was anointed king. 
and uh, raised on high. And then the anointed of God, that, that's speaking to um, him being chosen. He's being, he, he was chosen by um, God himself. And then finally, the sweet psalmist of Israel. I think that speaks to him being a worshiper of God, but also, obviously, the writer of all those psalms that we sing and study and were inspired by God that we um, cling to today. And so that's the introduction, and then we get, into, we get into these words. And the first thing he says is, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. Right, and so that second verse is, it's as if he's, um, I mean, he's speaking to the inspiration that God gave to him as the writer of Psalms, as the speaker of Scripture, right? This is what, what we went through recently in Second Peter, right? That holy men, that, that men were carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God, and that's what he's saying here. He's God's, God used my mouth, God used my tongue, his word was on my tongue, and he was moved by the Holy Spirit as he spoke from God. David, it appears, knew, knew this. He knew that what he was doing was inspired scripture. He knew that what he was what he's setting down was um, the word of God. And then it says in verse 3 and 4, God spoke. God spoke. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. And what does he speak to David about? He speaks to David about what makes for a good ruler. What makes for a good king? What makes for a good leader? <clears throat> and what does he say? He says, he who rules over men righteously, he who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, when the tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine after rain. It's a glorious picture, isn't it? It's like, it's a refreshing picture. It's, I mean, you think of a day like today that's just clear and cool and um, the early, in the early in the morning when the sun is coming up and it's still fresh, you can see the, the, the dew glittering on the grass and, and it's, it's so, it's beautiful. So also, just like that, is a ruler who fears God. Just like that is a rule, ruler who deals righteously. Good rulers fear God. They are not vainly ambitious, but they, are the, they, they feel the burden of the calling to lead, right? And they rule voluntarily, yet not for their own gain, not for their own legacy, not for their place in history, not that they might de declare and boast before God before the world when they are on their deathbed proclaiming that they have done better than, um, than others, right? The best kind of ruler that we can have is a ruler who rules in the fear of God. Have we ever seen this kind of, of ruler? Have we ever seen this kind of ruler? I think we saw it in King David, but have we ever seen that kind of ruler in this nation? Right, a fearer of God. Have we ever seen a, a president 
bowed down in the Oval Office and pray to God Almighty for his nation. Have we ever seen that? Not in, not in the last or this century, certainly. Right? But just think of it. Think of it. Think of it. Think of, of having a, a, a ruler that did not boast in all kinds of ridiculous weaknesses. Right? Didn't boast in a a military, didn't boast in um, legislative prowess, didn't boast in his ability to make deals, didn't boast in this and that, but broke his knees and prayed to God Almighty in the name of Jesus Christ from the Oval Office, televised on TV. Can you imagine what that would be like? Can you imagine what the Christian church would do? Um... Right now, the Christian church would pick it apart because we're just a bunch of picker-aparters, I fear. Right? But, but what, what glory there would be in that? What glory in, in a ruler fearing God, truly fearing him, afraid of God and afraid of the consequences of his own leadership and therefore coming to God in humility, calling for repentance and fasting, calling for the nation to uh, humble itself. That ruler would be like the light of the sun on a, on a cloudless morning, the new grass with the sun glistening on it, these beautiful images. It would be, uh, it would be glorious. It would be, you know, it's, it would be the, um, the joy we have in breathing in non-humid air, air in September, right? It would be so refreshingly glorious. The ruler who fears God is, is beautiful, is glorious, is uncommoning, is refreshing, is, um, is fruitful, right? It's causing that tender grass to spring out of the earth through sunshine after rain, right? That, that's, um, would that we had these kind of leaders. Are we asking God to do this kind of work for us, right? That's our work to do, is to plead with God that he would give us rulers that uh, rule righteously and rule in the fear of God. That's our duty now. We have, uh, we have elections coming up in less than two months, right? We have local elections, we have federal elections, we have those things coming up, and we need to pray that God would raise up those who um, fear him, right? We need, to, uh, we need to do that. Now, next, um, David, David looks back. He does look back uh, to God's covenant. Um, and, and he says that God's covenant is what has prospered the nation. Truly is not my house so with God, for he has made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things and secured for all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not indeed make it grow. So he looks back, he sees God's covenant faithfulness, he sees God protecting him, and yet that leads him to look forward with that one statement, will he indeed, uh, will, will he not indeed make it grow? And this is where David, in my mind, is getting cosmic. He is looking forward, will he not make it grow? And this is when we have to think of the eternal kingdom 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. Will he not make it grow? Think of Isaiah. Think of the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah 9, 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Right? This kingdom of Jesus, this spiritual kingdom of Jesus will continue on eternally. And David is, David knows this. David is uh, thinking about this fact. David is in awe of the fact that he would be, um, he, he would be in this line that's leading to an eternal kingdom, right? Uh, as opposed to the worthless. What happens to the worthless? But the worthless, every one of them, will be thrust away like thorns because they cannot be taken in hand. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they will be completely burned with fire in their place. And that's where the, the recorded words of David end. Right? The worthless are thrust away. Notice the comparison. The king who rules righteously is like um, f- you know, fresh grass that tender, dark, green, fresh grass, but the worthless and those who don't rule rightly are like thorns, right? You can't reach down and put your hand on a thorn because it will slice your hand open. You have to take iron implements and uh, wood implements and push them out of the way so that your, your skin doesn't make contact with them, right? And so they on the other hand, are destined for fire. They have no future. Those outside of God's covenant, those not chosen by him, don't have that future. They will be completely burned with fire in their place. And that makes me think of of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13, where he clarifies for us these two destinies. 13.41, the Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Right There's that contrast again between being... um, being that which is fuel for the fire or that which is the sun of righteousness, this, this glory um, that uh, shines forth. And so, very simply, the last words of David are actually about Jesus, right? They're actually about that eternal kingdom of Christ that endures, Ultimately, it's about Jesus as king of his eternal kingdom. Jesus is the rising sun. He is the ultimate righteous ruler. Indeed, Jesus even feared God, didn't he? Seems strange to say that. Jesus is God. And, and where do we know, where do we read of Jesus fearing God? What's that? Okay, that's one place, right? He was submissive to his father. 
Where does it explicitly say that, that Jesus would fear God? No recollection. Isaiah 11. If we go to Isaiah 11, we read this about Jesus. And then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness... He will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. So right there, we get that description of a righteous ruler, right? He's one who, who, who deals in righteousness. He's, he's one who righteously judges the poor and he decides with fairness for the afflicted of the earth and he will slay the wicked with the breath of his mouth right but but there it there it is the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the lord and he will delight in the fear of the lord jesus feared yahweh and that is how he lived and that is how he rules and that is how um he rules as the king of all the nations. In Revelation 19, right, we see the, the ultimate goal of, of Jesus as the ruler of the nations. Revelation 19, it says this in verse 5 or 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. Right? All those thorns, all those thorns that, um, that would, would afflict him, he will come with that rod of iron and strike them down and throw them into the flaming fire there to forever glorify God by burning before him. And so what I take from this is David, at his dying, David takes the opportunity on his deathbed to speak of the eternal kingdom of God. He looks forward to the reign of Jesus Christ. He proclaims that, there, that ultimate order is coming. He proclaims that there is a ruler. There is only one ruler who will rule in the fear of God and with perfect righteousness. He will deal righteously. Order is coming and has come through Jesus Christ. One commentator, and I'll, I'll end with this, one commentator put it this way. He said, one could not look at the flux and flops of history and deduce that a righteous ruler over mankind is coming to reign. Right? If we look at history, I mean, it's just one disaster after another. It's sort of one power taking over and another falling, but then corruption here and there. Our world seems to be plunging to chaos rather than rising to civilization, wallowing in oppression after 
um, rather than finding justice. And many of the Lord's own people walk through their personal lives riddled with uncertainties, wondering how they apparent, the, uh, their apparently senseless circumstances find a niche in divine wisdom. We could never infer kingdom hope from personal experience. We can't infer kingdom hope from personal experience. Personal experience is all over the place, right? Our own personal experience is a, is a list of terrible sins and great faith and, uh, and, and, and a back and forth between them that's scandalous. We could never infer kingdom hope from personal experience. David, however, tells us it is a matter of divine revelation, Hence, the coming kingdom is not a political proposal, but divine certainty. God's people in this world seldom have circumstantial certainty, but we have kingdom certainty. Right? I don't think, and the commentator goes on with a personal statement, he says, I don't think I could go on without that. I don't think I could go on without that divine promise, that divine promise certainty. I mean, think of the chaos that we live in the midst of. And the political order of the nation that we live in is, is fracturing. It's difficult. We don't know how it's going to come out. Um, one, one Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies and meets the Lord. And out of that comes a political fight where uh, people are talking about burning down Congress. Right? That's where our rhetoric has gotten to. That's where political discourse has gotten to. That's, that's the, the instability of, of this nation that we live within. And yet, can we smile? Can we be at peace? Can we trust? Why? Because Jesus reigns as king over his kingdom, and he is not just the ruler of the United States of America. He is the ruler of all the nations of the earth. Right? He rules the entire earth, and the nations are just a drop in the bucket of his rule. He rules over the farthest part of the universe. He rules over the, the tiniest microscopic elements of, of this world, and he certainly rules over the nations. And wonderfully and mysteriously and in a way that we will never understand until glory, he directs the hearts of the kings of earth <laughs> and will order all things to his own glory and will and at the end of the ages every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is lord amen let's pray father we thank you for jesus we thank you that he is a reigning king that he uh that he superintends the nations. And Father, that we, we have been called to live in a kingdom that will not rise and fall and that will not be ruled by the wicked, but will be ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ himself righteously and in the fear of God. And it will be an eternal kingdom that never, never fails, never ends. And within, within the boundaries, within the the borders of that, that kingdom, there will be eternal peace and rest and Sabbath and feasting and joy and kindness, and it will be a world of love.
And Father, I pray as we, as we suffer through life in this fallen world, and we see the, the, the wicked prosper, and we see nations rising up against nation, Father, I pray that our hope would be set on that city that has foundations, on the eternal kingdom where Jesus now reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.